Uh, three, two, one. Hello again to a momentous episode of Elite Rugby Banter. I'm your host this evening, Andrew. I'm joined by Ant and by Phil. Uh, just last night, we were recording on Sunday after the World Cup final. The Springboks became the first ever team to go to four World Cup finals and come away with a cup. And we became the second ever team to defend our title as World Cup champions. I know my fellow panel members uh, had very uh, joyous celebrations last night. Maybe we'll just use that as a euphemism for now. Um, how are we feeling, <laughs> gentlemen? Uh, starting with you, Phil. Uh, how's the head? How's the heart? Uh, the head is doing much better than first thing this morning. I think it was pounding like outside of my skull, it felt like, when I woke up. I haven't felt a hangover like that in a few weeks, maybe. A couple of days i don't know <laughs> but um yeah the the heart i think is still going it's still pounding um andrew you were saying you rewatched some highlights and it was just as stressful so you know even for me like touching on some of the points and probably talking about it now it's still gonna feel stressful but you know all, all's, all's well that ends well and thankfully we went through all that stress and we came out the other side with the big w so super happy yeah, and to you also st uh, struggling with some post-traumatic Springbok disorder? Not so much stress. I don't know. I felt like this was less stressful than England game, maybe. Um, but <laughs> well, maybe it was just the, the brand he was kicking in better than it was last week. But I definitely was feeling um, a lot this morning. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just, an, I mean, so many emotions last night um, and over the last three weeks, I suppose. Coupled with, you know, a lot of energy expended during the game, jumping up, doing laps of the lounge, um, and just fully, fully investing yourself in the results, in the, the celebrations. So I was definitely feeling very fragile this morning, but most mostly come back alive now. Um, I'm glad I don't have to go and attend an awards ceremony, put it that way. <laughs> well, the Springboks came away with our third ever, well, our third in a row, one point victory, just ridiculously stressful as a Springbok fan right now. But as Sia Kulisi said, and it's become a bit of a viral catchphrase since we find a way. So we find ourselves podcasting again as world champions for the next four years. And you can be sure we won't let you forget it. So a huge, a huge, I think you have got the most, the most sympathy for is Jared Wright having to do another 1,450 days. <laughs> Has he committed to it? As you said, he's going to do it. <laughs> I don't know if he has committed to it, but I mean, I feel like there's an expectation now and he just needs to ride it out. Yeah, uh, amazing, amazing feeling. Well done to the Springboks. Uh, and I think, you know, probably fairly hard luck to the All Blacks. Um, a hell of a final, another tense affair, a close game won by, you know, a matter of inches in so many different ways and situations. So let's talk about some of those those key moments from the game. Um, Phil, maybe we'll come back to you again. You know, what were some of the the real key moments that you drew out of that Springbok performance? 
I think like also watching back in the highlights, just the one moment, which I think was so crucial uh, was uh, I think Orance's cover tackle just before halftime, I think it was. Um, Rico, yeah. Where, where he made it on Rico. And it was such an amazing like covering tackle. We know how fast Rico is. Orance is probably or possibly faster. And to make that tackle and uh, deny New Zealand scoring a try at that time, I think that would have been such a blow just even for our morale and confidence going into halftime. So looking back, like I'm sure we have a lot of other moments to go through, but that one for me was just such a massive one. And the All Blacks are just so damn dangerous in that little five minutes before and after halftime. They're so well known for that. And somehow we managed to quell them there. And Oh, I mean, it's tough to isolate single moments. But I think for me... It was early on in the game, you could see we came out fired up. And, you know, the first couple of minutes, there were some massive shots put on Richie Monga by Edsbeth and Peter Steph. And I think seeing that we'd come out firing and we were putting them under pressure and that they'd, within the first two, three minutes, had already reverted to a kicking strategy rather than a running strategy. Um, you could see that they weren't getting any purchase. That was probably the, the, the first standout for me, is just noticing how quickly we put them under pressure defensively. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, geez, uh, Colisi and Peter Steff were just immense in that rush defense, just putting pressure on people and putting hits. I mean, wow, some of those early crunches, especially. Yeah, Peter Steff folded uh, Jordy Barrett in half. He folded Richie Mahonga. Incredible, incredible. I'm, I'm happy that um, neither of you brought up the fact that there was a red card in the first half because there's a lot of New Zealanders going around very sour uh, today in the sort of come down from the World Cup final saying, you know, well, they won against 14 men. No, no, no. But I think as, as Springbok fans, I, I don't. it was obviously a factor and a huge call and something worth talking about, but I don't feel like they can really feel aggrieved at that. I don't know if you guys agree. Like Sam Kane, no mitigation, head, uh, shoulder to the head. Uh, is there anything else to be said about that? Yeah, I mean, I deliberately didn't choose a couple of those types of things because they're a bit more negative. But I think I will firstly disagree. Yeah, of course, of course there was no mitigation in the right right call was made. I think both on that and the QC one. But what astounds me is that people just don't seem to understand the framework, that you're still seeing journalists um, and, I mean, even the enforcer coming out and being like, oh, well, you know, there were two head tackles and the one's red, one's yellow. Where's the consistency? It's like, well, the consistency is that Sam Kane wasn't bent at the waist and Circulis, he was. Like... <laughs> If you understood the framework and you could coach your players to do it, you wouldn't have had four red cards this year for you know hitting people in the head to the spring box zero. Like it just proves that the investor doesn't know what the framework and the coaching like requirements are, because then you wouldn't be having these problems. You wouldn't be having these recurring headshots, um, and the fact that he couldn't see the difference between what Kane did and what Kelly did is just you know fundamentally the problem with, with the investor as a head coach. Um, so anyway, anyone, <laughs> sorry? Head coach being the operative word. <laughs> yeah, but essentially, I mean, anyone anyone arguing about those is, just doesn't understand. I mean, the fact that, I mean, Khaleesi's could have even just said a penalty. Like, he was completely bent. There was the ball carrier dropped. He hit, first contact was on the shoulder. He was wrapping. His head contact was secondary. It's like every single mitigation was there. Um, you know, so the two the two cards we got in the World Cup for for high contact were both extremely marginal. You know, I mean, that's the one when he was practically on his knees. Like, 
you know, so you can see there's a fundamental difference in the way that we've been coached to approach tackles versus the way that the Kiwis did. But I think also the, like, it was explained pretty clearly and pretty well as well. So for people like Ant said, who are still not understanding how the mitigation works, why it's being brought down from a red to a yellow in Khaleesi's case and why Sam Keynes doesn't, it's, it's almost like they're choosing not to understand on some level because it's being explained to you. So it's, yeah, it shouldn't be, I, I agree. Like the, it was a pretty clear red card, especially I mean, the way that they explained it. But that's been a recurring thing as well. It was the same thing last week in the England game, that penalty at the end. Yeah. You know, uh, Ben O'Keefe says penalty for putting your knee on the floor and then driving in. Like it's very clear what the penalty was for. It wasn't for um, anything else. It wasn't for Koch. It wasn't like that. And that all happened after the guy's knee dropped to the floor. So I think that point of people just not listening to what the ref's saying, because I think the refs have been very good at communicating this World Cup. Um, and if you have an issue with the law book, that's a different story. But you can't say there hasn't been consistency or explanation or logic in the way that it's applied. Just staying on the subject of cards, um, I've been saying for a while now, um, increasingly out of trepidation rather than any sort of insight, that I think Fr Shannon Frizzell's do a reckless moment. Um, before uh, this sort of international season, he's been a, a really abrasive, but often, you know, wrong side of the line kind of player. We know he's got his own domestic abuse uh, clouds hanging over his head uh, back home in New Zealand. Um, but he's been an immense player for the All Blacks in the lead up to this World Cup final. And I've just been saying, maybe this is the week. Maybe this is the week that he that he screws it up. And um, he got a, an early yellow card for, I think, he, he missed the clean out on Bongi, grabbed him around the neck and then folded onto his knee, which uh, the ref said eventually was unintentional. So they didn't upgrade from yellow to red. But you can, I can sort of see how they might have been told, you know, well, they don't have a hooker on the bench, really. So let's target Bongi and see if we can uh, upset the apple cart. I, I don't I don't want to say that the All Blacks would stoop that low, but if they were going to sign a hitman, Shannon Frizzell would be it, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I appreciate that you're coming out with a very spicy take early on, <laughs> deliberately targeting our hooker. Um, and you know what? I mean, it worked out for them. Like our set piece was a lot less solid i mean we lost what half our lineouts and our scrum definitely didn't get the dominance it did so i mean that made a, a huge impact on our game but whether it was deliberate i don't know i mean he came in from outside of the rock pretty much like that was the most illegal cleaner i've ever seen from his head the starting position <laughs> so maybe like, he did just see oh there's bongi early let's get him i mean no, i give it I, i'm not endorsing that view but it was just I, ridiculous how yeah. from the side he was coming like, I think if nothing else, it was just so reckless from him. And like you say, he missed the initial clean out and then he just sort of like didn't control like what was happening. And that's always going to be a danger to the opposition players. So, yeah, but I was really worried when Boggy went off so early, just like and said, it affects our set piece so much. He was a key part of the risks that we've taken pretty much, you know, given that Dion Fury, as well as he's done in certain aspects, we, we spoke about last week how he's not, you know, someone that we want to depend on for the whole game. And there was like almost worst case scenario of Bongi going down so early. So that definitely made me feel quite worried. But I think given everything, you know, it's so easy to say in hindsight, given the good result. But yeah, it's sort of just about worked out okay yeah i was worried every time dion Ferry took the ball into contact like why are you 
why are you doing <laughs> like, we don't have another hooker and we don't want to go to uncontested scrums because that's a weapon for us later on in the game especially uh but he did exceptionally well i think apart from the line outs which i don't know i am a bit of a dion free apologist because of my stormers you know uh leaning but a lot of the lineouts were lost because they read our jumpers and got up in front of them. I don't know how much that is on Dean Ferry, maybe not getting the throw over there over the head or the accuracy thereof, but a lot of it was them reading the jumpers and just getting up in front of us. And it was clean steals. It wasn't like tight contestations. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, you know, wearing my blue and white glasses. What did you guys think? No, and I think that's fair. I'm not, definitely not saying he was the reason for the lineouts. We just have had a much poorer line of success rate when he's on the field this whole tournament. Um, and but what, what the exact reason, whether it's the unfamiliarity, you know, obviously Bongi's played with these guys for six years, Dion hasn't, um, or whether it's just you know, fundamentally Dion's getting his timing slightly off or something. I, I mean, I, I can't speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the bottom line is did he do better than Joseph Dweber would have done? And I would argue still yes. I think he was still more valuable to the Springboks on the field. And probably off the field too. Um, that's hard to say. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, given the way they talk about Dion Fury's experience, it, like not obviously Springbok test match experience, but given that he's 38 or 37 um, and what he, brings, what he brings to the whole squad, uh, I think it was super valuable. And they talk about him so highly. So I don't doubt that he was the right decision and ultimately it worked out and he ended up having a huge impact. Like he played 76 minutes or whatever. So yeah, last yeah, four lineups. Really, really but, well. I mean, around, yeah. the, around the pitch, he was brilliant. Exactly, yeah. I mean, last four lineouts, but the scrum, they was 90% uh, win rate. Like it could have been more dominant, like Anne said, but still uh, 10 out of, out of 11 scrums won on our own ball. So yeah, other than the lineout and a little bit less dominance in the scrum, it was a good performance from Dion Free for sure. Yeah. Talking of good performances, we've talked a little bit about Peter Steff and Siokolisi's defense. I think we should just give them a, a proper run. And then I'll just invite you guys to talk about any other particular individuals you, you thought stood out. Um, do we all agree Peter Steff was a deserving man of the match? I mean, 28 tackles, some of them you know, critically timed in defense. Some of them just absolutely stamping that physical authority that the box were looking for. I feel like he was like the flag bearer for the team in this game. 100%. I don't, I don't think there was many questions on that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't even know who I would suggest. I was, as you say, he was just absolutely everywhere and so dominant with his hits and his carries. I and mean, he carried really well, really strong. He was you know, high up on the chase, um, you know, for the contestable kicks and stuff. So, you know, very much deserving of the match. And I mean, he was, as always, is our fourth that goes the full 80. Yeah. And I agree completely. He was the official man of the match. And uh, before they announced it, when I was discussing it with people, or, you know, after the match, it was also all in pretty much, you know, in everyone agreed that he should have been man of the match. And I think I saw a stat today which said that 28 tackles that he made is a record for a World Cup final. So that's a new record. How many did Dusitwan make it when he. Uh, so he just awesome a man of the match for like a massive. Yeah, uh, he has he has the record in a test match, which is like thirty eight, but that was in the quarterfinal or in two thousand and seven, but it wasn't the final. Um, but I think so the he, final he also made a, a silly yeah. number. It, he, I think it was twenty something, but that's the one Peter Steff broke the record. I think. Well, yeah. that that sounds like a record Peter Steff would appreciate. 
Ja. Ja, Jacques Nien, aber came, um, came out and said if a white plastic bag blew across the field, he chased that down too. So he's just <laughs> he's an absolute menace on defense. Um, obviously a past, uh, you know, World Rugby Player of the Year. And we've been saying for a little while, like he hasn't quite hit the same levels, but I can't remember a better performance from Peter Steftatoy. Like, um, especially one that was so obviously, you know, visual. I mean, a lot of the time he does the stuff that people don't see, whether it's hitting rucks or pestering people, the breakdown, you know. Uh, he he really was out there just making open field contacts, just absolutely dominating everyone. So huge amount owed to Peter Steff. He really led in that regard. Uh, who else did you guys feel really stood out? I thought Colby had a really good defensive game, like Aerily. Um, you mean when he like super I mean, Paul was Jordan? <laughs> yeah, that was great. No, I think, I mean, Colby's also had a bit of a quieter tournament, um, and maybe it's just the way we've been attacking. But I think defensively and in the air, like, I, I think obviously we weren't great in the air. Um, but I think Colby and Arnsa, but probably, in my opinion, more Colby, really turned up today and, and contested so well. I mean, they didn't get any purchase on the kick ahead game. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, there were individual instances of defense, like um, that people draw and stuff, where he was just. Yeah man doing things yeah i uh i mean it's so easy to just look at the whole team even like the defensive you know tackle numbers they're all so high we defended a lot obviously didn't have as much possession but um yeah just from my side i think faf had a like he played 80 minutes and he was also just for 80 minutes running around like you know like the little terrier that he is um he made 15 tackles for a scrum off and only missed one, which is kind of crazy for, oh. uh, you know, a scrum off uh, at all. So very impressed with him. Um, obviously, we didn't see too much in terms of um, running the game, but he also, when he needed to, I think he controlled it mostly okay. You know, it was it was a bit tense in some situations, but I, I, I think him and Pollard still, yeah, so, sort of stood up and did what needed to be done when necessary. Yeah, absolutely. He did give away one penalty, if I remember right, which was kickable, but I think it was one of the ones that the All Blacks didn't take. Um, sure. Yeah, there were there were a few others, obviously, that shone. Uh, there were very few people that didn't play well, I think, despite you know a very low-scoring game. I think playing to game plan and, and implementing what, there was, what was asked of them, um, everyone pretty much stood up in the World Cup final, which we knew they would after... People saying, oh, they're fatigued, they're tired, they're not going to be able to pick themselves up like South Africa always does. And we proved that. Um, another guy who I thought was was really good was Damien Willemsub at fullback. Like his kicking game, especially early on, we had a few exits where he just took control, kicked it back into the All Blacks half consistently, made sure he found touch, took the pressure off us, slowed the, slowed the game down. Uh, he was really good on defense, also really, really good. And the only criticism I have is he needs to work on his drop goals a little bit because he fluffed a couple of those. Um, <laughs> that that being that being said, I mean those would have been amazing to go over, but um, he was just returning the pressure immediately after uh, goal line dropouts and, and other situations. So fair enough to have a pot, but um, would have been nice if those went over. Obviously, uh, did you guys think uh, he was good? Did you think Vili added anything when he came on, or are we justified in? Yeah, you know, questioning that selection. No, I, I think, think Willem, Willem, so, so, so careful. 
yeah, I mean, Villemse played well, and I think we were justified in questioning Billy's selection, but at the same time, he did bring a sense of cool-headedness. Like, uh, that, that is what he's sort of selected for these days, you know, sort of to try and Except make... Except the whistle against the English. <laughs> Except for that occasion, obviously. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, like, he he's come on relatively early. Uh, you know, Willems has uh, been replaced. And but, but when Billy's come on, he, like we've said, he doesn't really... He's very different to most of the other bomb squad members because he doesn't come on with a like phenomenal impact, but he he uh, he does provide that sort of level-headedness which is sometimes needed, especially in the back. So, yeah, yeah, it, I'm not going to criticize him for his performance yesterday. Yeah, I think he does a lot of just quiet organizing of the backfield, um, which I think you, you obviously don't appreciate watching on TV, but in particular, but from the, some of the guys that have worked the game last week, um, they say that he just is in the right place all the time uh, to receive balls and also marshalling the um, Colby and Aronson. So you know, I think he's, as a closer from that experience point of view, is kind of what they're looking for there. Rather than, you know, you're probably obviously more and more used to Billy being that attacking threat coming on, swinging cool balls. Um, and we haven't seen that. And that's maybe why I've been a bit more, not critical of him, but questioning of, of is he bringing the impact that we would hope? I think maybe it's just I'm looking for the wrong impact. Um, but yeah, he's. I think again, it, it's hard to pick out standouts. So I don't think. I mean, apart from Peter Steff and potentially Colby Pollard, I don't think anyone played like ten out of ten games. But no one played less than a seven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talking of selections, and you just mentioned Pollard. Obviously, there was a lot made in the the lead up about the selection of Faf and Pollard, and being the only specialist scrum halves and and fly halves in the the twenty three. How do we feel about that? Obviously, we've got the retrospective results to fall back on now, but uh, how did you guys feel they went in a in a final under the extra pressure with what was asked of them from a game plan and a weather perspective? Maybe, Phil? Yeah, I, I think, uh, as I said with Faf, and it applies to Pollard too, they sort of, um, they definitely put their hands up uh, when needed. Um, I think Pollard's goal kicking at first, like my heart was in my mouth when he, got it when he hit the inside of the post oh, i think yeah. so and then the and then the second <laughs> one was also just like just to the right of the pole um but after that he started nailing them um but from a from a sort of controlling and place uh field kicking or kicking during the game he was very good i think calm which we know he is that's like probably the most um you know Pollard factor that he brings, just that calmness. And I, I think given the weather conditions, it's, it, it is hard to look past it as much as, you know, even uh, yesterday talking to a lot of people, they felt so bad for um, for Lebok, given he's played almost the whole tournament and then didn't even feature in the 23. But ultimately, it was a decision for the better of the team. And I think um, in hindsight, it worked. But even when we spoke about it last week, I think it was probably just about the right way to go. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I had no regrets about in the, or no upsetness at the selection when they came up with what they did. Like, you can completely understand the calls. Um, and, it's, it's, and I don't even know if I'd say it was that tough on Lebok. Like, it's just a different game to where he excels, particularly in the wet. You know, you saw him struggle a little bit last week um, in that. Like, and, and Paul was just, he, he is the calm head, he's got the better goal kicking. And if you're going 7-1, which is probably what the justified him being left out completely, 
um, was, was the thing. And, you know, they, they, I think the coach said it once. They said if they were going five through or six through, then Marnie would have been there. So it was just a, a seven to one split. But, you know, I don't think, I think the, I don't think there's any like, oh, I got, didn't play in the match, therefore I'm disappointed. I mean, you saw Marvin Ori, like in the, the, some of the Instagram feeds from the room, like he's as much a winner as Etzebeth. Like, you know, and, and I think there was a lot of comments about how Kubis and Tamani Lubbock were, you know, body doubling for, for Moanga and for um, Aaron Smith during the week. And that's been a feature of, of the squad for, since the last World Cup. Um, that the bench players do such an important role in mimicking the match day opposition. And if you look at the way that we har harassed um, Moanga, like, they're obviously the bigger job of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, huge like value that they bring even from the the backroom staff to the non-playing squad members everyone gets involved everyone takes ownership of it and i think that's a really special trademark of the springbok group which i've never heard being replicated elsewhere um the guys really buy into that system egos are left at the door so yeah huge kudos i think then to to rassi and and to jacques nienaba who well i know jacques nienaba is heading on to leinster um, now, so that was his last game in charge of the Springboks. I think Rassi's future is a little bit in the balance. It was talk of him being courted by a few other unions, but I, as far as I know, there's no movement anywhere else. So he's still with South Africa, which is, I think, welcome news for us. Uh, we'll be on the lookout for a new coach soon, but uh, that's a that's a problem for for future Springbok rugby. I think this legacy that. Uh, Jacques Nienobo and Rassi Erasmus have left behind. It's just massive. Back-to-back um, -back world champions. It's only been done once before. Um, is is this uh, the the best box side ever? Um, is it a is it a legacy statement? Um, going back-to-back, -back, like, what are your guys' thoughts on just this this era of box dominance, Phil? I mean, I think the short answer is obviously yes, like because they did go back-to-back, -back. and but I think like. Probably the you know the, the counter there is that we haven't been dominant between World Cups, but that's that's the feature of all Springbok teams. And I think the closest to the best team of all time was probably that 2019 when we did the All Blacks three years in a row. So that was you know Lions to a World Cup, that kind of squad. And I think we're up there because we've got two World Cups and a Lions to in this group as well. Um, so yeah, I mean I wonder which team wins on paper, but I reckon if they were to play the coaching. Of this group means that this group wins. <laughs> yeah, I I sometimes think that uh, Jacques Ninaba gets like I, I I don't want to make it sound too harsh, but I I feel like sometimes he doesn't get the credit that he deserves just because Rassi has such an impact and he's such a character and obviously was head coach of the last World Cup, but um, you know going from a defensive coach to being head coach previous like in his first like major role and being able to take that on and all the responsibilities, which, you know, a South African coach has to do. It's one of the hardest jobs in the world, but he's managed to make it look like with the help of Rassi, of course, he's managed to, you know, make it look not maybe easy, but he's obviously been successful. He's moving on straight away, but I think he just needs to get more credit than he gets. And I think partly it's because a lot of people still like to credit Rassi with so much of the good work, which is fair. But I think Jacques Ninaba, given the transition, given the way the squads worked, and like Andrew was saying, in terms of the whole um, 
the whole atmosphere of it, uh, the squad. I mean, it it was he's done an amazing job. Yeah, it's interesting. I think they they obviously tick different things. I think Russie's the more visionary type uh, aspect of it, and then Jacques, the, the more technical guy. Um, you know, and you think you can see that in, in the, the contributions they make when you see the backroom stuff. And I think probably what leads into the narrative is often when they do film the um, coaches' boxes, often Rusty doing a lot of talking. Um, but, you know, just like Sia doesn't always be the biggest voice in the change room. You know, he's very much the, the leader there. And so, and I think, I mean, Sia did such, I mean, probably about time you speak about Sia because, man, what a guy. Jeez, every single interview, you just fall more and more and more in love with it, dude. Um, so just to wrap wrap up the comments on Jacques, I mean, like he's two weeks in a row now just given the most glowing praise and positive review of Jacques. And just like, and I don't know if there is other coaches that have that kind of relationship. I mean, just to summarize some of Khaleesi's comments, Khaleesi's obviously been with him back since he was in the Western Province Institute back in 2009 or 10. Um you know, so they have gone a long way together and you know, but the way that they talk about it's all about knowing the person the family you know so, so jacques not just saying oh go and make this tackle let's go and make this tackle for your kid you know they know each other's wives know each other's families like that's why the springboks have all their wives and families in camp with them to try and just represent like what, what they're playing for beyond just the game um and i think jacques brought a lot of that at least from khaleesi's words um the huge emphasis and they, they just said that jacques just the most incredibly like wonderful person that he it's so much more than just him being a good coach um but you know again it, just, it speaks so highly of Sia. like i don't think i've ever heard a captain speak so honestly and glowingly and thoroughly around the team environment and yeah i mean it's uh, every interview where jacques says a certain thing and Sia comes in just with this emotional framing of it um it's, it's just brilliant <laughs> Jam, I'll, I'll let someone else chip in on Sia quickly before before you get out of hand here yeah, um, I just, just again on Sia, like you said, I, I, it, it's just you fall more in love with him, which seems hard to do because he's already at such a high level. Like we love him so much after 2019. He's like he's just such an amazing captain, but also such an amazing person. And and like with every interview, it's just it shows even more just what a like what a sincere and just wonderful individual he is. And he manages to not make it about him though at any point even though he's the captain and he's the face of the team and you know and it's such a wonderful thing i think <clears> like <throat> even other fans who have you know a bit of anti springbok sentiments even the ones who like to bash on the springboks it's hard to find someone who doesn't can't doesn't get like a warm feeling when is talking even like english or new zealand or irish fans you know so that i think shows the sort of the level that he and the sort of just general feeling that he gives off yeah i don't think it's possible to not like the man because he is he's just so genuine and honest and humble like he's so comfortable to say when he's made mistakes and he's so comfortable to say that like when he defers to others i mean it was quite funny in the interview after the game on the pitch side he, he was i think it was brian the banner he was chatting to he was like, like you know when i was a little bit of a naughty boy you know we're sitting in the chair like he's just so genuine um and, and yeah, just absolutely zero ego about him. It's just yeah, it's so refreshing. Yeah, I think in a way, like he's he's a bit of a metaphor for what we hope South Africa will be one day. Like he he just 
he comes from very little. He comes from a very like troubled background. He comes from a township. He was raised by his grandmother. Um, he's grown up. He got an opportunity. He took it with both hands. He's progressed through the ranks. He's worked bloody hard. He has a multiracial family. He's honest. He's just genuine. He owns up to his mistakes and he has made many in his life. I don't know if you guys have read his autobiography, um, but he, he owns it and he moves forward and he just, he's positive about the future of the country and like just in a phenomenal leader. I mean, I saw photographs of him and, and Cyril shape, shaking hands. And I think the caption was something like um, the, the leader that South Africa loves and respects uh, shaking hands with Cyril Ramaphosa. Like, <laughs> like everyone's saying see for president now. Um, which is probably a step too far, but phenomenal servant of South African rugby. He's how old now? About 32, 33. So we're unlikely to have him as captain in the next World Cup, but um, he's done an incredible amount already and deserves every plaudit. Cool. So I think... Yeah, I think what's been so lovely with Hosea is, is I think, you know, quite early on that the leadership capability was recognised. But in the last, kind of since the last World Cup, Taylor, the last World Cup, it's, it, particularly in between, he's just established himself as, you know, one of the greatest players we've ever produced, not just leaders. Like, mm. you know, I think we, as a part, have been fairly critical of his playing contributions um, pre-2019. And I think that was fair up until about 2017-18. He was, you know, more of a flair luxury player. He wasn't doing the hard graft. Um but he's added that to his game and he's now just, yeah, an un unbelievable player um, yeah, on top of just being such a top, top human. I just want to say the one moment from the match, he made a tackle on Adi, I think when Adi was in his mm. own 22 and it was such a phenomenal tackle. Like Adi is one of the hardest guys to get a proper dominant hit on, right? Like he's so he's got so much leg drive and he's so good at like wriggling out of the first hit. But you know, see, I just smashed him back, and it was like such a nice and such a big moment. It was uh, also crucial. Like I think we got a penalty just after. Yeah, and it was ah, lovely. Kit Kitsov got a turnover. I think in the next the next phase, uh, just putting them behind the game line. Their cleaners couldn't come around quick enough. So it forced the penalty ultimately. Yeah, huge, huge contribution. I mean, he could have passed to Jesse Krill though, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely need to go rewatch that game because there were like now that it's really kind of trying to focus back and remember there, we were had a couple of hot attacking moments. We were on their try line and just didn't quite get there. And well, be... yeah, this this was something that um, an Australian fan was you know, harassing me on Facebook about. <laughs> oh, you played you played against fourteen players, and the side that played the least rugby won, and you didn't score any tries. And I was like, well, firstly, like if we kick our kicks in a World Cup final, we win. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Like then you need also, to you scored one try. Yeah, like, and and it was a and it was a knock forward from Talia, but we'll talk about that now. Um, and we, we had Aronsa who who came within millimeters of scoring. He just lost it over the line on a very difficult pickup. We had Damien Dalende who was held up over the line. Um, on the other hand, like New Zealand had that Rico cover tackle. They had a couple of opportunity. They had a disallowed try as well. Like it wasn't like it was an unexciting final. I mean, I feel a little bit triggered. I, I feel a little bit triggered by neutrals saying that was a against the spirit of the game and all this crap like 
Come on. I've seen a lot of people saying this was the greatest final they've seen, which I think yeah. is fair, to be honest, because 20, 2019, 2015 were both relatively one-sided. Um, 2011 was just an awful game. 2007 was boring as hell. <laughs> um, and now we're starting to test my the levels at which I can send my, my memory back. Um, <laughs> 2003 but, but, yeah, was great. That was before my, my rugby watching time, so I wasn't <laughs> my knowledge. But you know, the point is, is that's it's it's a it really was a close, tense, high quality game for the most part. Yeah, and I I, I think it's just sour grapes from fans. Or I mean, if if we're being completely honest, people who appreciate rugby for what it is I would be able to appreciate that type of game. Like, yes, only one try. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it was a terrible game. And you get, whether it's in football or any other sports, you get low-scoring games, which can be just as engaging, just as, you know, captivating. And I think this was, even for a neutral, like, um, you have two of the best teams going against each other in the final, pushing each other all the way into the 80th minute. And it's like, this World Cup's been amazing. And people who are hating on it, I feel like, don't appreciate rugby for what it is. And maybe... I mean, we don't want to chase away people. Obviously, we're trying to grow the game as much as we can. But just got to appreciate when things are good. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it is a, an overriding narrative of there just are people, it seems, maybe I'm just not plugging into other sports enough, but consistently looking and being negative about the state of rugby, which with, I think with just a very marginal amount of effort and education, you would not have that view. But I think people just, they, you know, they, they're stuck on narratives and they're too lazy to go past it. I mean, a great example is, you know, Christy Doran. Like, that man is, like, one of the top Australian writers, but he just fundamentally trots out old, repeated phrases and doesn't actually watch the game for what it is and, and see what's on the field. Yeah, if you want to if you want to watch point-a-minute rugby, go watch Stormers play Scarlets or something. Like, don't, don't come to a World Cup final and expect to... <laughs> Expect to get like super high, exciting, but also sloppy and leaky rugby. Like that's these were two top teams absolutely grinding each other out. It was amazing to watch. Yeah, agreed. And like the two quarterfinals, which you go back to, were also amazing matches in their own right. Oh, yeah. And yes, there were more tries, but different types of games. And you know whether whether it's the weather or whether it's the um, impact of just the occasion and the big match and that making it tight you know teams have to be able to play in different ways and there's an enjoyment from being able to appreciate the different type of games too it's um yeah i i definitely agree with Ant that it was you know one of one of the best finals of all time and possibly the best tournament as a whole of all time um, I, I think that that part we definitely can agree with and if you think about the matchups we've had in the pool stages you have france new zealand islands South africa cracking cracking games mm. You had un, unexpectedly good performances from teams like Wales and uh, England coming from nowhere. You had Fiji make the quarterfinals. You had Portugal getting a first ever win. You know, Uruguay got wins. Namibia scored the most points they've ever scored in a game. Australia were horrific. Um, but there was just so many talking points um, about this. And in almost all in a positive light, except for Australia. Um, and, and, you know, I think maybe Scotland were the only team that kind of were also a bit disappointing, but that's more a function of their, their group than anything that they could have done. Um, but, yeah, it just all around was a brilliant, I thought, 
tournament and spectacle for rugby and and you know if you're not seeing that or not appreciating that then again i think you deliberately trying to look for negativity um rather than, than appreciate like that the sport is actually an incredibly good place and viewership numbers are as high as that they're the highest they've ever been like and if you as i said i mean you feel you and i were both fortunate to be to that that's some of those games like it's the most incredible atmosphere um so yeah i think again if anyone's saying oh the game is dead they're just if the fans are engaged and the fans are going it's it's the people that are saying that that are misguided in my opinion yeah it, it also was a final that was billed as you know the clash of two different templates you have this the box with their seven one their forward dominance their set piece focus versus the all blacks who are flair skill and all the rest like um obviously the weather played a part but uh, i also do want to spend some time we talked a lot from a springbok perspective and who shone and and what went right for the springboks and what what could have done better or you know key moments but from the all blacks point of view obviously they're hurting now they had a, a world cup final which which could have gone their way if they'd taken a few key moments richie monga missed a kick which was quite tough geordie barrett missed a kick which he'd probably get you know eight times out of ten maybe um big yeah. big pressure moment he he missed it could have gone the other way and the springboks would have been fighting I mean, back. just opting to take the kick instead of going for the poles i mean for the corner a couple of times well that's yeah. it they had they had opportunities right so if you're if you're an all black supporter where do you think it went wrong uh for the all blacks phil oh um i think just being unable to take their chances like they had enough of the ball they had enough of um the ball in the right area even you know they it's not like they they couldn't get into the 22 at all but uh, south africa defended so well and ultimately you know if new zealand were able to convert just a little bit more of that into some more uh clinical uh possession you know like it, it's kind of tough um because south africa were so good so it's it's hard to identify just like what more new zealand could have done in that aspect but um yeah they they just needed to convert some more chances basically they it seems like they did enough and i think just two players who stood up almost the whole tournament but even in this game for me especially Adi severe just such an amazing player he just uh keeps pushing on and on and again i think he gave a, a great performance and then uh also mark Tillier, just every time he got the ball even in a tight match like uh, last night he's just uh, so scary as an opposition to you know try and defend and he, he he's just so capable of beating defenders um with ease it seems yeah and they brought mark to in quite quite cleverly uh close to the contact point so just off the rack off the scrum off or he actually picked and he picked and went a few times uh just got himself involved and beat one or two defenders and just push that defensive line a little bit, you know, got that gain line success. So it was very clever because they knew the Springboks were going to cut down the, the wide channels. They weren't going to give him space there. So they brought him in um, and very effectively um, his, his little half break um, led to, led to the try and his other little half break led to the disallowed try, which he was just unfortunate that there was a knock on at the line out earlier. Otherwise, you know, Moonga, Getting the space he had to get around Delendi and, and get the pass off, you know, would have been a try for I think it was Aaron Smith that went over eventually. It was disallowed. He was immense. Uh, as you say, immense all the way through the tournament. And 18 months ago, it wasn't even an all-black conversation. So yeah, 
he's had a really good breakout year. Is is he rivaling Marnie Lebok for breakout player of the year? Sure, that's a tough one actually. I was yeah, you know, kind of just assumed it was going to be Marnie, but no, I think I think Talia's had. Oh, it's hard. It's going to say big impact on games, but and they've both won matches kind of themselves. Maybe, maybe LeBox had the bigger impact in total. I think LeBox had the big impact considering what he had to do. It's a lot easier to come in as a wing in an all-black system than it is to come in maybe as a fly-off in the South African system. And, and not just the fly half, right? He was a, a very different template and they had to almost build a whole new game plan around him, but he unlocked those abilities of the Springboks that were a little bit sort of subdued. I think I just don't think Pollard can unlock a backline the same way that, that Marnie does. So, yeah, I would say Marnie's had a bigger influence, even though he didn't play the World Cup final. And we know that in, in World Cup years, those RB player of the year and breakthrough player of the year, they are heavily weighted towards the World Cup. Uh, I still think Marnie's got a good shot. I mean, played most of the World Cup games, right? Um, Pollard really only took over for the for the final. Uh, he played the quarter as well. I think he started. Hey, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the other one was Biel Biari from France. I can't remember the mighty Williams. The mighty yeah. Williams. Oh, so I think on. it's definitely between Lebok and Talia for sure. Like I think yeah, there's 100%. a big gap. Like Biel Biari, it's it's kind of tempting to put him in the conversation just because he's so young especially compared to Lebok and Talia but you know he uh, hasn't That's... made the same impact as the other two so I, I don't know which way it's going to go but I'll, I'll be happy for either Lebok or Talia yeah both, both fantasy greats um, obviously yeah. <laughs> lots of obviously hope it's, it's Lebok <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and similarly I mean since we we're on the topic um a few other awards announced this week or award nominations. We got Coach of the Year, obviously Nianabas in in uh, contention for that, along with Ant's favorite Raiwa Louis, I think his name is. Hey, Simon Raiwa Louis. Raiwa Louis, yeah. Foster was in the mix, and Foster's uh, in the mix, and Andy Farrell. And Andy yeah. Farrell's and uh, Foster surely is out of the question. Um, yes. And winning a World <laughs> Cup, winning a World Cup, you'd think Jock Nianaba can't really be beat or is Andy Farrell going to get it for Ireland's dominance up to this point oh I think it's it has to tough be one or... yeah sorry go ahead it, no I mean it is tough because you've got Raul Louis because you know first beat victory of Australia in 55 years beating uh England at home the first time ever and making the quarterfinals like that's huge that's a mass any type of what it's six months in around time so that's a massive performance you've got um Farrell you took Ireland to 17 you know, wins in a row, world record equaling. Um, you've got Foster, who can't, doesn't know what a high tackle is. And then you've got Neymar, who won the World Cup. So, I mean, like, it's, it's a tough field to pick from. And I think, I think like, um, the Portuguese coach should be in there as well, um, to be sure. fair. I think he should be on that list. But I really, I think I think all of Farrell, uh, Raul Louis, and, and Neymar have good shouts for it. If anything, I'd say probably Neymar was the least likely out of those three, just because... They'd already won a World Cup, you know. It's like hardly yeah. new ground. Um, whereas the other two have done, you know, things that have never been done before with their teams. So maybe yeah. their achievements weigh slightly higher um, relatively. But it's 
it's a really tough pick between those four, I would say. Yeah, I, I, going back to what I said earlier, it's like Ninaba, he just doesn't um, come up enough in the conversation of really good coaches. And I think that will play against him here. But yeah, just when you mentioned Andy Farrell's record, like if you take out the quarterfinal, he was so dominant. And But like Andy said as well, like it's a World Cup year, so much of it gets weighted to the World Cup performance. So I think it's going to count against Andy Farrell so much. So I also don't know yeah, which way this is going The first to ever Grand Slam in Ireland. Like, yeah. So there's there's, there's stuff that they've done this year as well. So, you know, and, and that's, I'm not saying Jacques's not a, not a deserving coach. I just think that the, the other teams also have very good, the, the, if you look at the total team performance, you know, we didn't win the rugby championship, got smoked by New Zealand. Um, you know, I think like those types of things, I think will count against, you know, I don't think we've had the most dominant year that or, or groundbreaking years that us, other teams have had. But as you say, Farrell still couldn't beat a quarterfinal, so does that matter? <laughs> yeah, and then I guess the, the big one is the player of the year. Um, the men's player of the year, that is, obviously. Uh, we've got Bundy Arki from Ireland, Anton Dupont from France, Ibn Esbeth, uh, and Adi Savia, who clashed in the, the World Cup final. So, again, in World Cup years, we are biased towards World Cup games. And it's hard to say up until the quarterfinals that anyone other than Bundy Arki, I think, was the form player of the tournament. Um, Despite being worse than Delendi in literally every single metric. Well, yes. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, he was the one grabbing the headlines, but literally every single stat um, Delendi was better than in terms of tackle completion, line bust, tackles broken, uh, try assists, meters made. Like, it's just a, you know. He was the one also, like, like Aki before the World Cup definitely wasn't even in the conversation. So like you say, it's oh, yeah. being weighted so heavily and then he didn't get past the quarterfinals. So I don't think he can really be in the conversation against the no, other three because of that. So so then, I mean, DuPont, um, I think was a deserved winner last year. I don't think he's been quite the same player this year for France. Uh, I don't know if you guys agree, but I, I think it's squarely between Elizabeth and, and Savia. And I think they're both yeah. very deserving candidates. I, I wouldn't want to pick between them, to be honest. Well, that's because I wouldn't want to be between them. <laughs> 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 scary guys to piss off. Yeah. Um, I... if, if that's the measuring stick, I'd rather piss off Adi than piss off. Um, <laughs> Evan, yeah. Evan, but yeah. No, I mean, it's... They've both also been so good. I, I think given the Springboks, you know, came out on top, perhaps that might just push Urban over. But it's so hard to argue against Adi. I mean, every game, like, he just comes out firing. Like, even when New Zealand lose, he's, like, the best player in the losing effort. He's just been so consistent. Um, and, I, yeah, I wouldn't begrudge him getting the best player, even though his team didn't win last night. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it wouldn't be unfair. I mean, I think Van der Fleur definitely stole it last year undeservedly against Sevilla. Um, so, yeah, probably probably wouldn't be unfair for Sevilla to get it. But at the same time, Elizabeth has been... I mean, you know, he's in the conversation of greatest Springbok of all time at this point in his career, and he's still only, what, 32? Like, he's going to be the most capped Springbok very, you know, within the next season. 
um, and he is just immense. So, yeah, it wouldn't be un unfair by any stretch for him to get get it either. Yeah. But the funny thing is, I mean, you know, the, the awards are going out tonight, so by the time you guys listen to this, <laughs> all of these things will be known. <laughs> yeah, at least you get our deliberations. Uh, honestly, not after the fact where we just agree with everything that's that's been said. Uh, although that's not really our style. Although it's a world rugby decision, so we're not, yeah, we're yeah. definitely not obliged to agree with it. <laughs> we we always have a hot take. Or, we love to disagree with world rugby, let's put it that way. Um, it's so easy because they just make such terrible mistakes. Speaking <laughs> of, did you see Rossi's changed his Twitter profile picture to Gus Pichot um, in light of the elections next year? Interesting, yeah. Like, yeah. I love it that Rossi, he's won the World Cup and he's out there. I mean, I don't actually love this aspect, but, you know, he's tweeting Ben Smith and like stirring the next pot and you're like russie just just take a break just, yeah just just chill for a bit you've achieved your ultimate goal like what what's left just just have a enjoy the drinks put your phone down don't, <laughs> don't need to take pot shots at like a new zealand journalist like just relax <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. like I'm quite, I'm quite happy to, to fight against world rugby like that you know you go for it but you know the ben smith thing is like just just chill <laughs> yeah all right well, i we... don't know if we want to we... oh, yeah andrew i was gonna say for leading on from that i don't know if you want to look at like the best team of the tournament potential candidates but don't, don't let me jump the gun sure do you, do you want to do a 1 to 15 yeah we can do it i mean <laughs> uh <laughs> starting from wonderfully off the cuff yeah starting from one i'll, I'll throw out ox there <laughs> Easy to I do. That's, oh. that's fair. He's definitely been the most dominant, um, dominant we said at the tournament. Well, we can't just go one to fifteen Springboks, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, we can throw out some other names. I mean, I mean, from a ball in hand perspective, it's always so much fun watching Thomas Gajo. Um, he's yeah. like he has a ridiculous number of defenders beaten for a prop. Like he's so far above any other prop in in that metric. Um, I don't know, yeah, perhaps scrapping not as um, nowhere near Ox's level, so I'm happy to give this one to Ox for sure. Yeah, I think I think Ox is the right call there. At hooker, I'm going to say uh, Piatu Miafu, the French guy. Malvaka. Malvaka, sorry. I always get him in the center mixed up. Um, but yeah, just unbelievable tournament as well. Like, you know, Julian Marchand, regarded as one of the better hookers in the world, and did barely notices his absence. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I I will just give in number one, um, Andrew Porter for Ireland was immense as well. I'll, I'll just mention him in the conversation. Obviously, he didn't make it past the quarterfinal. And in the quarterfinal, he cost his team a couple of penalties. So that definitely detracts. But sure, I mean, he's a great player. <laughs> I feel like those are great reasons for him not to be in the team of the tournament. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, I mean, I'm not going to fight you at hooker. So we're moving on to tight head prop then. Yeah, it's kind of a tough one, but I, I think. Oh, at um, hooker, I think Mike Tadger is worth a shot to put you in. Just for the Kieran's kick. Based on that, that final. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, look, he, was, he played proper rugby, but that last match alone, he was unbelievable. Yeah. Well, so I think he's, uh, he definitely deserves a shot. I think the torpedo to touch should put him there alone. Yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> um, for tight head, um, I'm going to throw out Ben Tamafuna. 
even though Tonga didn't, Ooh, you know, play so well, uh, or, you know, performance-wise, they, they didn't uh, set the world alight. Like, especially watching him, you know, in the stadium, seeing the impact that he makes every time he touches the ball, I was uh, blown away by his performance against South Africa. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. That's, yeah. I think that's definitely the right shot. He was immense. I mean, I think runner-up maybe Franz Malherber, just for his consistency and the role he's played in the Springbok set piece. Um, but yeah, no, Ben Tomefuna as an individual, I think outshone all the other options. Great, great player and great World Cup. Yeah. All right, number four, Locke, Eben Etzebeth, number five. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any debate. I mean, I'd say probably or. Five is tricky, but Sam Whitelock's had a cracking tournament. Yeah, he has. A old warhorse just kept on going. Um, almost felt bad for him not to win a World Cup at the end, but not quite, as you know. <laughs> um, and Scott yeah, Barrett, too. Ridiculous though, that if he had three golds and a bronze, that would have been the most ridiculous yeah. return of medals. Uh, I have still yeah. two golds, a silver and a bronze. Like It's yeah. still pretty stupid. Um, but no, I mean, he's, he's been really good. So you go. Um, are we are we gonna I can't remember exactly what position has uh, played every game, but that um Portuguese lock was he number five? Um Martins, I think. Uh, yeah, he was a flank. He was a flank. Mispositioned out of position on earth. Uh, uh, yeah. But he, he was yeah, really he good, was yeah. But he might have been. All right, so I'm I'm jumping the gun. Um yeah. should we go six, which is open side in South Africa? Sure. Oh yeah, are we are we locking in white lock? Is anyone else? Um, suggest. Uh, I, don't know how, I don't know how much he played. Um, like how many minutes compared to, for example, Scott Barrett at five for New Zealand? Yeah, I just thought white lock just did more when he was on. He definitely he made like made impact. He, yeah. yeah, and you maybe wouldn't expect it because you know he's the old warhorse coming off the bench, maybe not to have the biggest impact, but he he did such a good job every time. I'm happy to have White Lock there. He definitely did a lot less stupid things. Yeah, you're not going um Mario Toje. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let's not get started on that. I I, I struggle. I don't think that any English names are gonna come up. Um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so open side. I'll, I'll be the first to throw out a name again. Uh, Levani Botia uh, from Fiji, I think, Ooh. was pretty immense, like, especially noticeable at the breakdown. Um, him and the Uruguayan Adal, I think, were always, you know, breakdown threats, but I'll go with Botia. Any yeah. suggestions? Adal was brilliant at the breakdown. I don't know if he was all rounded enough, but I mean, top, top player. Yeah. I mean, Nicola Martins was, as we've mentioned, was really good. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know if Khaleesi like, stood out enough to be in kind of like team of the tournament. Sure. It's so tricky with the Springboks because they only played half the games. You know, they've all got half a minute of any of anyone else, um, which which just reduces your um, likelihood of selection. Um, I'll, I'll throw another so, name. An another name I'll throw in the hat is Jack Morgan from Wales. Um, he captained there. He, he had a good tournament. He hasn't been yeah. their, their consistent captain, but um, during the World Cup, he was called upon and he really rose to the occasion in a really shit Welsh side. So he does definitely some plaudits. Maybe he doesn't make the team. I think Botia is a really cool call. Um, I'd like to see him there, but Morgan definitely deserves a shout out. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think that's very fair. 
and he's also part of my uh, fantasy team. So <laughs> again, disqualified. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> cool. So blindside. Uh, blindside. I think you could find an Englishman here. I thought Laws had a really good tournament. That's fair. I mean, Peter Steph. Peter Steph was brilliant all tournament as well. Like, I mean, he wasn't obviously the final was his um, you know, his Magnus or whatever. His, Magnus Open, but he was really good the whole tournament. But I think Laws was really good in a very poor English side. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. I think I yeah I'd go Peter Stiff as the number one call, but happy to have Laws just behind him. Okay. Um, we are where did, not looking at Frizzell. Where did um, no? We're not looking at Frizzell. Although Frizzell <laughs> had a couple of really good games. Um, but at the um, World Cup did he? Genuine question. No, I think you did. I think he was really impacted. It, it's it's also tough with New Zealand. So uh, Frizzell didn't play in the first game against France, obviously, and then they were so dominant in every other game. So you know, like uh, except for the um, game against South Africa and maybe the. I don't think I saw him apart from him trying to deliberately injure someone. I don't think I saw him do a single thing against us. <laughs> I could be wrong. Or I could <laughs> well, he's, not, he's definitely so he's, he's definitely not making our team. <laughs> no, I mean it's on principle alone. No dickheads. <laughs> no dickheads. World Cup fifteen. Um, nice. All right, number eight then. Ardi, um, Ardi or Aldrit? I think are probably the top two. Yeah, yeah, I really like Aldrit. Aldrit played very well. I mean, Valentini. He Valentini played really well for a also a shit Australian side. That's true. And, and and Ben Earl did play eight for England, and he was, I think, yeah. he was their best player, even though yeah. he. I, I think I don't think that's your controversial take at all. I think Ben Earl was definitely. But but he can go sit with Shannon Brazil in the decades fifteen because you know he likes to celebrate <laughs> every uh, knock on. And, just, and... Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I I think just just because he's English, he can go to the decades fifteen. Um, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> which, 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 which which cut is that? Um all right, so number nine, uh Scrum off. Do we do we just give it I mean, to DuPont? DuPont was he, uh, he against I mean he only played half the tournament, but he was incredibly effective when he did play. He was, he was. I I, I would still put Aaron Smith out there. I think he's still oh has an unrivaled pass and he's able to create just from his pass alone and some of his decisions off the base. So I, I'd like to throw Aaron Smith out. I think he's a All about... No, that's about it. I don't think there's anyone else to suggest. I think Smith Smith had some... Well, he played some of the best rugby of his career and he's played 125 games, I think, for the All Blacks. Yeah. <laughs> and he's been good for so long, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the man can step you inside an airport bathroom. So uh, he's, <laughs> he's he's been he's been incredible this tournament. Um, and I think we'll see the rise of Cam Roygaard now. But uh, he signed off his career in, in a really dignified way. But I still don't think, in terms of a contribution to a team, Antoine Dupont can be upstaged. I think he's a he's a he's a highly recommended or honourable mention. Happy. Happy. All right. Someone writing this down, by the way. No, we'll have to rewatch this. This is, uh, yeah, for everyone that's listening, this is completely not rehearsed or researched or this is gut reaction. <laughs> Very much I mean, it's almost as if that's our brand. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's elite yeah. rugby banter, not elite rugby prepared commentary. Um, <laughs> n- number, number 10, uh, fly half. How do we feel? Uh, I can tell you who the worst fly half was. That was Carter Gordon. <laughs> Poor guy. Jeez. Oh, after, I mean, after, after me, I think at the beginning of the tournament in our preview episode, I said he'd be like breakthrough player of the tournament. And that's been. <laughs> well, Yo. something broke his confidence. Yeah. Oh, just think, Eddie, Eddie Jones killed that man. Mm. Look, look, we're gonna have to we're gonna we're gonna have to touch on the whole Eddie Jones thing. We'll get Mitch on maybe and do a whole debrief of that. Oh. Obviously, Mitch, oh. uh, if 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 he Eddie wants Jones to, Eddie Jones was resigning himself this morning. But like, my God, that is a shit show. Um, but no, let's not let's not focus on that now. Okay. <laughs> um, Richie Malanga, Andre Pollard, just guys who went really far. But then Sexton was I mean, good. Sexton. Uh, Sexton yeah. good, Jalibert. Not, not, I mean, Ford, Ford was good for a chunk, but I don't know if he was good. Not enough. Only then he you know, got, got benched, so I don't know if he can uh, carry the flag. Um, uh, Pollard was good, but he was good in a Pollard way that doesn't yeah. win you the tournament. Wanga was good, but again, he was really good against like Italy and Namibia, yeah. so that doesn't count for me. So, um, Sexton, Sexton does feel like the pick. Not Ben Donaldson, for sure. Well, um, uh, I mean, uh, look, we, we we came into the tournament being like, oh, France are nowhere without Intermac, and Jalibert was, I think, flipping brilliant for them. Yeah, he he, he kept his errors surprisingly low because he's known for, you know, doing amazing stuff, but also doing crazy stuff. So I think I was impressed with, like, how consistent he was able to be. Yeah, maybe he, fair. he did also kick the, he also kicked the kick backwards, though, so... Yeah. Yeah. Him, and, uh, him and Jamie George have those, you know. The, they, I was just waiting for the third, the third one to happen against us last night. I was like, <laughs> who's going to do something stupidly sideways? Um, and it turned out it was Shannon Frizzell. Well. <laughs> yeah. Nice. All right, so we're giving that to you? Um, I thought it was Sexton. I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's okay. a standout Sexton. 10. Sexton? Um, but, but, yeah, but by, by a little bit. Okay, Sexton begrudgingly to Sexton. Uh, number eleven, then. Yeah. Do we want to do the centers and then the wings? Uh, I think we can yeah, go one to fifteen. Okay, eleven. Okay. So Talia for me, I Talia? think. Yeah. Yeah, I think Talia's Talia's the call. Who Who else is in the question there? I mean, Colby must be. Um, Carreras from Argentina. He was really good. Yeah. Carreras was good. Carreras yeah, yeah. was good. Um. Yeah, I don't, think James, anything, so I don't think James Lowe did enough. No, the El- LBRE was also, he was good, uh, but he wasn't in, the, in, in quite the same league. Yeah. No. Um, I, think, I think it would be Talia over Colby and, who did we say before that? Not, I mean, Redondo played a fair chunk at wing, but he was also a bit hot and cold. Mm. So um, I don't think him. Yeah, I think Talia is the right shot. Talia with Colby backup. All right, twelve. This is where um, I think it's probably an Aki Dallander debate. Uh, Jordy Barrett, sort of a okay. He also played, but um, yeah, I don't know. And you, you feel quite strongly on a stats basis, right? That Dallander deserves to be there. Yeah, and he made the final. Like he actually went all the way. So now, I mean, look, Aki was very good, but I think Dillende was also very, very good, and also 
went the whole distance. Yeah. So Phil, why do you yeah. think Manu Tuilangi then? Uh, you know, <laughs> he uh, he managed to touch the ball like three times against South Africa. That's pretty <laughs> impressive. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I don't think we can look past um Damien Dalinder there with Aki as a backup. We happy with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah sounds good. Thirteen is quite tough though. Thirteen is tough. Thirteen is tough. I mean, I I think Gary Ringrose. Um, no. No, I, I, I would rather give it honestly to Jesse Creel. I think um, he's he's done. I think he's you know especially defensively, he's had a phenomenal World Cup, um, and that's what we really want from our centers. You know, with a, that is their main role, especially the thirteen who has to make those reads. And I think you know, especially when Um went down, we were worried, especially given uh, no backup for Jesse Krill and we've seen Moody do well thankfully but I think Jesse Krill was really good and he, I think he deserves a spot in this team so we're not we're not going yeah, to I, I yeah. definitely think it's Krill we're not going to I don't think maybe someone like a... a, a Nasalevu oh. was good but I don't think he was as good as Krill like yeah. I think he's worth a mention um, at 12 I don't know again Again, I don't think Tosova was good enough to to be in the conversation with Yelendi and no, just no. as, as a side. And I don't, yeah, I think I mean Aslevi was brilliant and he was a good cap, but I don't think he's Creel equivalent. And um, Enrico Ioane, no. I mean, he's had, definitely had his best year, but yeah, I still think Creel was better. And and look, maybe there's a fair bit of bias here, just as you say, because we were. He surpassed our expectations um, so well. Yeah, but I think he also just objectively was brilliant. Defensively, he was the best defensive center. And, you know, when he needed to attack, like he did against France, you know, he did. And he flared. Um, so I think I think it's not an unfair shot. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll take a 2-1 against. I think still think Gary Ringrose was the better all-around player. Jesse Creel was incredible on defense. You can see a huge amount on attack except for his grubber assist for Colby but I think I'm, I'm happy to take that take that uh, result 14 I mean the the World Cup equal try scorer Will Jordan surely takes 14 it's a tough one well, eh? but Penner though yeah Penner. Penner was also incredible and that arguably really... worked harder for his tries <laughs> Penno was amazing I love Will Jordan but I'm tempted to say Penno. it's a really tough one it's, it's like... really hard because they both I mean they both were, were so good but I, I think, mean, yeah, Will Jordan is that he's, you know, he's a right place, right time type scorer a lot of the time. And, you know, that's not judged. That's not a negative. That's not like saying he doesn't work hard to get in those places. But Penno had to work to get his tries, I think. Um, I, 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 I think it's a tough one. I think given the eight tries, and I think you're being slightly harsh on Jordan. Like he is just such a, like, he has such a good feel of the game. It's like every, he's one of those players, like every touch, except for last night, where we managed to keep him out of the game so well. Um, but every other t every other match, like every time he touches the ball, he like makes the right decision. He he, he has that like Ben Smith's force shield around him. It's amazing. Yeah, I thought just coming yeah. back to, coming back to the final, I thought it was really interesting that he got subbed um, for Damien McKenzie, which oh, sorry for Anton Leonard Brown, right? 
but either of them is a weird sub for Will Jordan. Um, I, I didn't really pay attention, but I assume Rico Iwano went to the wing after that. Um, just a weird, weird substitution when your most dangerous player, guy who's trying to break the record, goes off the field. It just shows how we really nullified, nullified him. Or oh, he was injured. I don't know quite what the situation was there. Just worth mentioning. Yeah, it was it was odd. And I I don't want to come across as a a Welsh apologist, but um, Louis Rees Zammet, along with Jack Morgan, probably carried that Welsh team. So he probably deserves a mention, but he's not in the same class, I don't think. Yeah. All right, number 15. Um, Phil for 10 marks. Uh, why is it Vili LaRue? <laughs> you know, Vili is the glue that keeps this whole Springbok team together. So without <laughs> him, we, we wouldn't uh, <laughs> uh, have I failed. Um, <laughs> It's a tough one. I'm trying to think who stood out. Um, and Willems is right up there, to be honest. No. Who else? Uh, Ramos, maybe. Ramos was really clinical. Yeah. I think he was really good off the tee, obviously. He good off the tee. I don't know how much he was, how good he was in general play. Yeah. yeah. That's I mean, genuine. Yeah. I don't know. Hugo Keenan was also super classy, like every no. touch. Yeah. He was. He always is. Um, Bowden, I think, did a really good job at 15. Did. Yeah, he did. Um, he's Bowden, been Bowden was really good. Scored a try last night. Yeah, I'm sort of edging towards Bowden here. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's unfair. Yeah, I'm happy to go Bowden. I, I can get on board with, with Bowden shout. Just okay. so, is it only Etzebeth and Ox that are the Springboks? Really? Is that what? And Delendi. Peter Stiff. And Echo Four. Okay, five. Oh, yeah. oh, that's a good. Okay, cool. We've, 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 <laughs> we've, 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 yeah, Krill. Oh, yes. Five. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Okay. That's, I was just like, going to be surprised. I mean, not that we're trying to rig it either direction. It was just. Um, oh, I was pretty good off the cuff, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, someone do a quick quick summary, Phil, so you can add it to your TikTok. And add add the caveat in the hot take, controversial, clickbait, Jersey bites and stuff. Only five you ready? Make the world tournament 15. <laughs> and do you remember oh, the picks? Are you happy to run through it? <laughs> yeah, Irish. yeah, sure. Um, so our elite rugby banter team of the tournament is Oxen at Loose Head. We've got Pier 2, Malbaka at Hooker. Um, you've got France Malherb. Did we go? Mal no, Ben Tamafuna. We went, sorry. Ben Tamafuna, Ivan Etzebeth, and Sam Whitelock. Loose Trio is uh, Botia, uh, Peter Steff, and Ardi Sevilla. The halves are um, Aaron Smith and Johnny Sexton. Centers are Delendi, Jesse Creel. Did we actually went for a Springbok center pairing? Wasn't it? Um, was it? Um, Dupont was number nine, wasn't he? I thought you overruled us and said Smith. Oh no, I think Smith deserved a mention, but I think Dupont deserves the spot. Okay, cool. We'll give the Northern Hemisphere something. Um, and then the wings are Talia and Jordan, and then we've got Bowden Barrett out at the back. Yeah. So an all 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 black back three and a springbok sense pairing. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I mean it speaks it speaks to the strengths, I guess, of the all blacks, right? Yeah. That's it. All right. Well, we've been going for geez, an hour and a half nearly, hour and twenty minutes or so. Anyone got any last reflections on um us being World Cup champions for another four years? The game. Uh, the legacy, what it means for the country, anything like that? Closing comments? Yeah, uh, for, from my side, I think just 
the World Cup comes around every four years, and when we do well as uh, as a country, it sort of shows in just the atmosphere. Like wherever you go, you go to the shops, you go to like the office, and there's like a sense of unity that doesn't get replicated uh, um, in other times as much as it should, perhaps. And it's a reminder, like you know, these days we the sort of talk of the rainbow nation and that sort of thing is more scoffed upon and it, a lot of people you know don't think it really applies anymore but during the world cup and when the springboks play well they still do have that ability to bring the country together and i think with sia khaleesi as our captain uh he's done such a phenomenal job of making everyone want to root for the springboks as much as possible even if you're not particularly into rugby so it's been massive again and i think um the Springboks have done us proud and I can't wait to be the champions for another four years and I can't wait for Australia in 2027. And to yeah, this World Cup has been a just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I think I mean the players have said it that the last World Cup was about earning back the respect um, of the South African public and earning the respect on the jersey. They were kind of building back the right to be supported and loved and like you know they had that from day one this world cup you know everyone was behind them everyone that was rugby interested was behind them but by the we got to the final everyone that's not even vaguely regular the amount of people that were messaging me on friday and thursday like asking can you explain what a 50 20 is like how do scrums work i mean just people that i know objectively do not care about rugby were trying to get invested so they could understand the calls and they could like properly be present for the final um you know i mean and, and the videos and scenes streets are being flooded i mean like people were packing into malls i was seeing like uh car dealerships the big screens outside for the advertising were turning into um tv uh view, viewing sites just, just driving around yesterday or saturday like everyone's in their green cars are stacked with flags this just meant so much to the country and, and in a way so much more than I think it did last time because now we actually had the, spect the expectation um, and that the country had really bought into it and believed that we could do this. Um, and the fact that we did it, the hardest road we could possibly do it, knocking out the other five of the top six teams in the world, um, beating New Zealand in the final, um, doing it the hard way, losing you know three of our top players before the tournament, losing more during the tournament, losing our hooker, in the first five minutes for the second World Cup final in a row. Yeah, it's just it's just absolutely unreal. So just so stoked with this and so glad that we've managed to pull it off. And yeah, one just really hopes we can keep leveraging this kind of unity because it really does. It really does just demonstrate that like we can make things happen if we work together. Well, there you have it, folks, from the greatest rugby podcast ever recapping the greatest rugby world cup team ever in the greatest rugby world cup final of the greatest rugby world cup ever a very special episode thank you for listening we'll catch you again next week to talk about other things rugby like maybe the urc or something like that thanks for listening catch you next time cheers